Jeremiah 29, verses 4 to 14. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there, do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. Do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have to you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come to pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from the place where I have carried you into your exile. Good morning, Elevation family. It is wonderful to see your bright, shining faces today. It's beautiful and sunny, a little cold for my liking, but I'm happy at least for the sun. Um, I'm with you this morning beginning a new series. Our, our um, teaching team uh, came up for the series this next month called Memory Vers- Mer- Sorry, Verses You Should Memorize and Why. And what we were thinking about with this series was that we wanted to look at verses that we all are probably familiar with. Whether you've grown up in the church or not, you've probably seen these verses turned into art that's up on walls or on bumper stickers or on mugs. Um, There's even a company that will take some of your favorite verses and put it on underwear for you. So if you are needing a little bit of encouragement, you can get underwear that has be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or troubled. The Lord your God is with you wherever you go. So, can look that up. (laughs) But we were thinking as a team that sometimes when we take these verses out of context and put them in places like on our underwear, um, that we might actually miss the context of them and sort of the deeper meaning behind them. And so we thought it might be fun this month to pull out some of these verses and reintegrate them back into Scripture again and sort of see, you know, who was God speaking to when he said these things? Why was he saying them at this particular moment in time? And to learn um, uh, a little bit more about uh, who God is and who we are as his children. So our verse for today is Jeremiah 29, 11. It's a good one. If you know it, say it with me. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. This is a beautiful verse, no? I mean, you could just put it up here and it preaches itself. Uh, We could just sit and like reflect on it for 20 minutes um, and get something out of it. But it is actually centered in a really interesting moment in history and in in God's great narrative about who he is and who his people are. And I think um, that we can get something even more out of it as we look at it in context today. So the scene opens Um, In Jeremiah Jeremiah 29, in the Middle East, in the mid-500s, B.C., before Christ was born, Israel, the people of God, have just been taken captive by King Nebuchadnezzar. 
and been brought out of Jerusalem into Babylon, and they are sitting on the rivers of Babylon weeping. How many of you are familiar with that reggae song from the 70s by the rivers of Babylon? Yeah. <laughs> I had to learn it in junior high, and I, if you haven't heard it, uh, I feel it is my responsibility to introduce you to it because it's an awesome song, and you all should download it and be singing it this week. So here's just the first little bit of it. If not, I'm going to sing it, or I might get the Gataco singers to come up and sing it with me. Is it not going to work? Okay. Um, so if you go back to the PowerPoint, I actually have the lyrics there that we can look at it together. <laughs> all right. Uh, all right. Well, here. Um, seriously, Gataco singers, do you know this? No? Oh, shoot, I'd make you come up and sing it with me. Mel, you want to come sing it with me? It goes, By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down. Yeah, we wept when we remembered Zion. When the wicked carried us away to captivity, required from us a song. Now how shall we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? Thank you. Okay. <laughs> um, I didn't think I was going to be singing this morning. Um, okay, so this song is taken from Psalms. It's directly from Psalms. And it is um, exactly the depiction of Jeremiah 29. This is the people of Israel have been carried off to Babylon. And they are desolate. Their city, Jerusalem, has been ransacked. Their temple has been razed to the ground. And they have been taken captive. And part of the reason why Israel was so devastated is because they believed this could never happen to them again. They had already been exiles in Egypt, remember? And God had sent Moses and had brought them out of exile into the desert where he had made a commitment to them, or what we call the old covenant, or an old promise, the promise to them that he said, I will be your God and you will be my people. And then he led them out of the desert and he brought them into the promised land. And this was their land where they were going to live and establish themselves as God's people. And then a little bit later, um, David rose up and he became one of their kings. And we know David from David and Goliath, right? And he was a man after God's own heart. And God said of David, this, this king is going to build me a temple. And this was really profound for the Israelites because until that point, you know, they had been nomadic. They'd been traveling through the desert. They'd just arrived in the promised land. And their most sacred object, which was the Ark of the Covenant, had just been living in a tent. And they would, like, move it around. But God says of David, this man, this king, is going to build me a temple where I am going to dwell, and you can come and meet with me in this temple, and you can come pray to me. And then God speaks in 2 Samuel, verse, or chapter 7, verses 13 and 16. He speaks this promise over David. He says, he is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Now, we are after Easter people, so we can look at this verse through the lens of Jesus. 
And we know that Jesus is a descendant of David. And so when we read this, that his name um, and his throne will be established forever, we understand that God is talking about Jesus, right? That Jesus, Jesus through David, is going to establish God's throne and kingdom forever. But you have to remember that the Israelites were reading this before Jesus, 500 years before Jesus came on the scene. And so they think it means that every single king that's going to succeed David is going to last forever. And that the kingdom of Israel will be inviolable, will go on forever. And they called this the Davidic um, dynasty or the Davidic promise. So they believe that their nation of Jerusalem was indestructible. They believed that their temple was safe. They believed that they, as the people of God, would continue forever and that they were safe. So then they're captured by Babylon. The temple is destroyed. The city is ransacked. They're carried off as captives, and they are completely bewildered. How could this have happened? Well, they really shouldn't have been surprised because there was this one annoying guy by the name of Jeremiah who kept trying to warn them. He kept trying to say, hey, listen, you're living on a past promise that God has made to you, but you haven't been faithful to it. And you better wake up because if you don't wake up, God's going to use outside forces to get you to wake up. So see, they were remembering all that God had promised them, but they had forgotten all that they had broken in that promise. So there was King David, who was the first of the Davidic dynasty, but his grandson Manasseh was a pretty evil dude. He ascended to the, to the throne, and he sort of undid all the things that David and David's son had created for the Israelites in terms of religion. He opened the city of Israel to foreign gods, and I think we have a picture of him here. He opened the city to foreign gods, foreign cults. He himself began to participate in child sacrifice to foreign gods. He opened the temple um, so people could come and sacrifice to foreign gods in the temple that was meant for Yahweh. So um, he really derailed sort of where the Israelites had been going with God. And slowly but surely, the Israelites began to forget who they were and who they were called to be. They began to put their identity in their nation state, their kings, and their temples. They began to put their trust in their kings rather than in the king. They began to put their trust in the promised land rather than the one who had promised them that land. They began to put their trust in the temple rather than the one for whom the temple was built. But even though they had not remained faithful to God, God remained faithful to them. And he was going to continue to be faithful to them um, and bring this promise that he made to them back to life. But first he needed to break down some of their false sense of identity and security. And so this is where we arrive in Jeremiah 29. They have been swept off to Babylon. They are captives. And Jeremiah gets in sort of like a prophecy battle with the false prophets. And I don't know how many of you are familiar with Hamilton. We're big fans in our, in our home. This is um, Alexander Hamilton and Tom, Thomas Jefferson having a rap battle. And I kind of imagine this was like what it was like, these false prophets, and then there's Jeremiah the prophet, and they're prophesying, and they're going back and forth, and they're battling it out. This is what the false prophets were saying. The false prophets 
were spinning. They were telling the Israelites what the Israelites wanted to hear, but not what the Israelites needed to hear. They're saying Jerusalem is safe and guaranteed by the promises of God. And then there's poor Jeremiah. Wah, wah, wah. He comes over. He's like, nope. Jerusalem is not guaranteed at all. And its very existence is dependent on you remembering who you are as God's people and you turning your hearts back to God. You got to remember your calling as God's people, he says. Or if you don't, God's going to have to use outside sources to help you remember. And sure enough, the Babylonians ransacked the city. They killed the king's sons in front of his eyes and blinded the king and carried him off to Babylon. They also took the priests, prophets, and scribes and dragged them off in chains to Babylon. After 400 years, Israel was wiped out. And now they were without a king, a city, and a temple. You think this might be the point at which the false prophets would wake up and be like, maybe this Jeremiah guy is onto something. But they didn't. They just kept spinning. They kept spinning their lies to the Israelites. And they said, okay, don't worry. This isn't going to last long. You're not going to be in exile long. Uh, don't settle in. God's going to come rescue you, and he's going to take you back to normalcy. So in fact, um, don't get comfortable. Maybe even like rebel. Rebel against your captors and fight back. But meanwhile, Jeremiah comes back and he says, no, this is not, this is going to last a long time. This, is, this captivity is going to last 70 years. And in fact, this captivity is part of God's correction for you. So listen up, pay attention to it. God's trying to teach you something. And don't rebel against your captors, because if you rebel against your captors, you're going to rebel against the correction that God is trying to bring into your life. So settle in, plant your gardens, get married, have your children, and pray for the prosperity of your captors, because if they prosper, you will prosper. And I think it's hard for us to wrap our minds around just how radical this instruction was to the Israelites. Because with this single instruction, telling them to pray for their captors and their captors' prosperity, Jeremiah, God through Jeremiah was setting the people of Israel adrift completely from everything they had gotten their sense of security from. Their kings, their nation, their temple, their army, their borders. I like how J.A. Thompson writes it. He says, um, dependence on the temple and its rituals Belief in the inviolability of Jerusalem and the Davidic dynasty, pride in their being the people of Yahweh, were all, in the final count, false bases for hope. And so it's at this precipice that we arrive at Jeremiah 29, 11, where God says to his people, For I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. You see, God is tearing down their false foundations. He's pulling it up so that he can make way for a new foundation and a new perspective. God is saying to them, there is hope and restoration on the other side of this devastation. He says, I have a plan for you. And this plan is a new covenant. It's a new promise. See, I made an old promise to you in the desert. You were going to be my people and I was going to be your God, but that fell apart. But now I'm tearing up the foundations, the rotted foundations, and I'm going to plant something new and we're going to do a new promise together. And this promise is going to be rooted in forgiveness and a new heart. And we see just a few chapters later in Jeremiah, the new promise, the new covenant, covenant that God 
um, gives his people. We get a picture of it. And this is it. God says, the days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time. I will put my law in their minds and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, for I will forgive their wickedness and I'll remember their sin. So it's significant here, he says, I will put their law in their minds, my law in their minds, and write it on their hearts. Because you see, in the desert, God had written the law on the Ten Commandments, right? And now he's saying, I'm going to move it off the Ten Commandments, and I'm going to move it into their hearts and their minds. And you want to see something else that's really cool? You, want to have, you ready to have your minds blown this morning? We're a week after Easter, right? So God made this promise to the Israelites 500 years before Jesus was born. He said, I will be your God and you will be my people. This is a future tense, right? This is what's coming. So let's fast forward to Easter. Here we are. We're Easter people. We live after the reality of Easter. Amen. And last week we saw, we were standing at the grave and, and the grave was empty, right? And Mary Magdalene was standing in the garden and she was looking for Jesus and she sees a man and she goes up to the man and she says, my Lord, do you know where they've taken my teacher? And as soon as the man says her name, Mary, her eyes are open and she realizes it's Jesus. And she's overwhelmed with emotion and she goes to throw her arms around him. And Jesus says, wait, don't touch me yet. Because I am returning to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Do you see it? It's not in future tense anymore. It's in present tense. He is our father now. We are living in the new covenant because of Easter and the cross. Amen? So it's finished. It's accomplished. God has done the great work and we are now living in this new promise. His heart, his law, his, his, his spirit is written on our hearts and our minds because of Jesus and what he did on the cross. He is now our father. Present tense not future tense. So what are some takeaways we can take from Jeremiah 29? Well, the first one is, I think, how God reveals himself to the exiles. Um, and I was going to talk a little bit more about this on Thursday night, um, relating to my trip down to the border two weeks ago. I went down to the Mexican border with a group of pastors and leaders in the Wesleyan Church. And um, we were there to learn and listen. And and you would have thought that we were going to work with these refugees and migrants, that we were bringing Jesus to them, that we were bringing the kingdom of heaven to them, and that just was not true. I'm here to tell you, I got there, Jesus was already there. The kingdom of heaven was already there, and we were just privileged to step into that. And as I read Jeremiah 29 and the promise he gives these people who are in exile, I began to see how God's kingdom is embodied by those who are displaced and those who are exiles and refugees. And so I want to talk more about that, um, but um, we've had um, a pretty serious loss. A friend of ours passed away this last weekend, and the, um, the funeral will be on Thursday, so um, we're going to have to reschedule that. So just uh, keep your eyes open on social media and things like that, and we'll, we'll schedule a new time for me to talk about that. But the second thing 
The second takeaway I think we have from this scripture is a new perspective on God's judgment. So it's pretty hard to get away from it. I mean, when you read Jeremiah, <clears throat> he doesn't pull any punches. He sort of like straight up tells the Israelites, this is God's judgment on you. This is happening because you broke his promise. And sometimes we hear modern day believers say things like that, like God allowed this catastrophe or this natural disaster, or this horrible catastrophic loss because it's his judgment. Right? Have you guys heard that? It maybe won't be that explicit, but it's something kind of along those lines. That God is allowing this as a form of sort of judgment or correction for people because they weren't following him. Right? I'm here to tell you that is an old covenant perspective. That is an old promise paradigm. That is a pre-Easter frame of reference. And we don't live there anymore. We live in the reality of Easter. And God does not work that way anymore. Judgment has been poured out on, in full on the cross. Jesus took it to the grave. He was himself separated from God. On our behalf, he went, descended into hell, he faced death, and he rose again on the third day. And so any of that sort of judgment that might happen because we have broken our, our promises to God... Um, we don't have to fear that anymore. God doesn't work that way anymore. So if you hear someone saying that, you can just know, oh, they're speaking in an old covenant paradigm, but we don't live in that paradigm anymore. The reality is because Jesus has taken all of that to the cross, all that's left for us to do is what Jeremiah was calling the Israelites to do. So Jeremiah's entire ministry was, the first one was that God is going to tear down and pull up, right? He's going to tear down and pull up your false foundations. And you need to turn your heart. You need to repent is what he said, which repent basically means just to turn 180 degrees. You need to turn your heart from the false things that you have put your identity and your security in. And you need to turn your heart back to God. And you need to remember that God is the source of your identity. God is the source of your security. That was Jeremiah's message to the Israelites. And that's the message that's left with us after Easter. We don't have to fear judgment anymore. All that's left for us to do is to turn our hearts, to think about the things that we maybe put our sense of identity in or our sense of security in. Maybe there are things that give us a false sense of validation or significance. And our call is to turn our hearts away from those things and back to Jesus and back to God and to remember that he is the one true source of our identity and our security. Because Jesus has told us that he is returning to his father and our father, to his God and our God. We don't have our identity from our citizenship. We don't get our identity uh, we, from a passport. We get our identity from being God's children. We don't get our security from the great wealth and might of this nation but from the great power displayed by Jesus on the cross. We don't even get our sense of significance through our religion. Ooh, Kristen, you're on shaky ground. We don't get our sense of significance from our religion. We get our sense of significance from a personal relationship with God made possible through Jesus. So that is my prayer for us this week. That as we go out into our lives, we remember to whom we belong. We belong to a heavenly parent who has said to us, I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, 
plans to give you hope and a future. We are his children. And that is a love that is worthy of us and our trust with our whole selves. Let me pray for you before we go into discussion groups. God, we thank you so much for this beautiful reminder that you are the one true source of our identity and our security. Forgive us for the ways that we forget from day to day. Forgive us for the ways that we allow ourselves to draw a sense of security and identity from things that are false foundations. I pray this week that you would move close to our hearts and that you would begin to help us to see the ways in which we have allowed ourselves to be rooted into a false foundation and help us to begin to pull that up and turn towards you and to remember that it is you and your great love for us that gives us our identity that gives us our significance, that gives us our security in the face of a world that is broken and full of loss and full of hurt and pain. We thank you so much for the cross. We thank you for Jesus, and we thank you for the mighty, mighty presence of your power in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.